It is Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 345. Don't tell Rob, I don't know what we're talking about today. My name is Caleb Hegg. And for the first time ever, I'm without a beverage to oh. drink here. I, I don't know what happened. That's not going to play Rob well. I'm Rob Vanhoff. That's not going to play Van well. I'm Rob Vanhoff without a coffee mug, mug today. What's going on, man? Just you know, doing the doing the deed, the deeds. You want to, you want to uh, you want to talk about it? Which thing? What you just read? Oh, sure, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Caleb just sent. Are you going to post it? It's from Israel National News from Arut Sheva, and I guess it's saying it's saying that there was a Christian missionary group um, associated with FFOZ in Jerusalem that now has been outed as not really Jewish as uh, Christian missionaries. They've been outed as Christian missionaries. Detroit. Yeah. They've Which been outed- I think they've known. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's been any other things I don't before think, this. I don't think FFOZ has been hiding the fact that they are messianic at the Brahms Institute, but that's certainly the way that the, uh, the national news has spun it. That this has been like an undercover missionary work. Um, well, all I mean, it, my experience of look of the the publications, they they try. It looks like like it could come from an orthodox source. <clears throat> in in my opinion, it looks like their their materials don't don't outrightly uh, talk about Yeshua. They talk. It's a, a from whole, Brahms. You mean from from the yeah, Brahms Institute? Yeah, yeah. It's all. It's like just Orthodox Jewish looking stuff. That's been my limited experience of it. I I so this isn't necessarily a, uh, a push against FFOZ, but the one thing that makes me extremely nervous with any kind of ministry that claims to be messianic or. Um, yeah, I, I suppose Messianic is, I suppose Hebrew roots would fall into this too, but any group that, um, that claims to preach the gospel, but then incorporates rabbinical text and or Kabbalistic belief and practice into their, uh, into what they do, I am extremely concerned about. I, because I wonder, actually we, na- I named the, this show separating things that essentially differ. I think that. Um, the Kabbalah and the uh, a lot of the rabbinical texts are essentially bordering on bordering on or fully in the occult, and so to attempt to mix the gospel with things that are clearly part of Kabbalistic and occult practice, in my opinion, are things that essentially differ, and that makes me wonder about the validity of the gospel message. In other words, is this the gospel that that uh, Paul preached, or is it a different gospel? That's what concerns me. Um, whether or not, you know, whether or not this FFOZ or whether or not a different uh, Christian organization um, gets called out uh, by by the the local news in Israel is kind of beside the point. Simply because I think that that could actually work against um, the locals in Israel in terms of trying to uh, keep back the gospel. If people hear all of a sudden, hey, these these people are are preaching the gospel. Anyone who might be curious about what that is now knows exactly where to go. 
So I don't think being called out for preaching the gospel is necessarily a bad thing. I think anyone who's trying to hide the fact that they're Christian, that might be uh, that that might be suspect. Well, it'll be interesting with with the state of Israel how this goes because um, one is like there is a Bible society in Israel right there on Jaffa Street, you know, right outside the old city, and they have Hebrew books, they have Hebrew New Testaments, they have Hebrew. Uh, books, you know, like comic books of, of the gospels, like with, with, you know, well done drawings for kids, but it's all the dialogues, you know, all the bubbles are in Hebrew and, but it's, it's known. It's like, known. this is a, this is, you know, Christians in Israel, in Jerusalem, publishing materials in Hebrew and I remember talking to people there and they were like, yeah, sometimes, you know, Orthodox people will come in and look, browse through the books, you know, and buy stuff. And so, um, so, but they have to be, uh, that there's some sort of agreement with the state of Israel that says, okay, we know what you're doing here. Um, but as of this other group, I don't know if it, if they were trying to fly under the radar as like a, we're a Jewish studies kind of center. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens here. Yeah. It's interesting. But yeah. I, I don't know their theology. I pres- personally, I don't trust their theology. I mean, I, uh, I know what I know of it is not of interest to me. I would not steer people towards it. Um, and I no. know that some of the people involved are, uh, affirm some sort of authority to rabbinic halacha and even the Shulchan Aruch, you know, which is steeped with mysticism, steeped with the Zohar and stuff like that. And and uh, they've published materials, I know, that that cite the Zohar and, and this kind of thing. And I, I frankly, I don't think that I don't know anybody involved in that organization that has the competency to actually deal with that. And that's I, I don't say that lightly. I, uh, I think it's. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of sadness in, involved if you ask me. The but. last book that I saw that they published was Rethinking the the Five Solas and uh that was we actually purchased that book <laughs> to look through it. Um I'm I mean I think that they I think that uh I think it pushes a, a salvation by works gospel first of all and and that is extremely I think that that's a false gospel. So in that book Well they, well they don't like the reformation. That, exactly. They don't like the Reformation because the claim, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. That's I think right. that, that you know, uh, Tovia Singer, we've talked about Tovia Singer being an anti-missionary and the fact that he lies, he like, he he straight out lies about what, uh, you know, to, to try to mislead people. Well, that book is almost in the same vein. That Frank, who wrote that book, uh, I, I either he hasn't done his research or he's, intentionally manipulating uh his audience to, to think something that's not true it's it's it, it's shocking the amount of non-scholarship that went into that book we, we i mean it, it it's been kind of a practice to sit and and open that book in the in the uh in the back of the office and just kind of marvel at how 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 someone would publish that it's it's really bad Okay, let's let's move on. Um, so, we actually do have some great things going on today, things that we are very proud about. Let's start with this. Okay, uh, let me get back to my thing here. Um, first of all, 
If you want to give us a call on our comment line, you can do so. Comment line is 253-465-3205. Now, here's what happened. A little while ago, we asked people to send in uh, ideas for a jingle for this for this uh, phone number. Now, we had a couple of people send some stuff in, and uh, each one of them had their own strengths and whatnot. And one person called in, and I got to find this email, the original email again, because I, I actually have misplaced the original email, and so I, I'm dying to remember who actually sent the original email and sang this. Dude calls in, sings it over the phone. Perfect, right? But it's just it's just him singing. And I thought, okay, well, I got to find somebody to, uh, to, to sing this and to actually make it into a jingle because it sounds like a decent jingle. Now, uh, Sean Ryan, and we talked about Sean last time. Now, I thought, now, Mia Copa, Mia Copa, Mia Copa. I thought that Sean Ryan was a man. Sean Ryan is a woman and has been a woman from birth, I have been assured by Sean Ryan. And I apologize to Sean for miscategorizing uh, her and uh, my apology. So anyway, Sean Ryan seems to be a very accomplished musician who uh, put together, I sent the, 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 the uh, MP3 of, of this person singing the jingle on the phone, sent it to Sean and said, hey, what can you do with this? Well, this is what Sean did with it. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. There you go. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that is our that is, Can we hear that again? Do you want to hear it one more time? Please. Yeah, I've never heard this. I didn't. This, this is Caleb's. This is, Caleb's been having this cooking with, with, that's right. with his co-conspirators here. First, I, I am, first time Rob heard it. Let's. We'll hear it one more time. Thank you, Sean, for this. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. Now, I do want to say it wasn't just there's Sean. A, woo, there's a, like a little woo in there. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Now, th- now so this Sean was, produced that? Sean then? produced it. Didn't, nice. didn't write it. The Thank original. You. Now, I forget okay. who wrote it, and I apologize for that. If you wrote it, here's the, here's the phone number to call. <laughs> yeah, if you wrote this, send me another email. I apologize. I, I, did, I did get a, a, numer- a number of different emails on people trying to, to uh, give now us we're going to have five different people say we that was me melody yeah, yeah. i apologize i apologize <laughs> anyway so that's uh, that's the number two five three four six five thirty two five that almost feels too good it's it <laughs> feels like we're becoming professionals it feels too good for us <laughs> i don't know that we <laughs> that's really nice uh, yeah and sean's in the uh the uh <laughs> in the chat room right now so thank you very much sean for uh for sending that over Appreciate it. Well done. Okay. Wow, uh, but great. let's not also forget people <laughs> who like to type in chegatorresource.com at chegatorresource.com. You can also find all sorts of free stuff at torresource.com. Torah Resource is actually uh, who produces this show. And now we have a new website, messiahmatters.com. Go to messiahmatters.com and find all sorts of stuff. In fact, we're uh, going to put all of our archived shows from season one. Episode uh, 30. I don't know if we have episode one or not. We might. Anyway, all the way back to the very beginning, we're going to try to put it all up there. By the way, if you are not subscribed yet, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, do us a favor. Click the like button on this uh, on this video. It really does help us, and uh, it lets other people see the video as well. 
uh, because the more likes we get, the more it suggests it to other people. All right. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's move. Let's move to a real topic here. Susanna writes in. She says, I just wanted to ask a question about something Caleb said in the last show. Number 344. Caleb, you mentioned that not all Torah commands apply to everyone. And you use the example of the command that Levites are to only marry fellow Jews. Okay, let's stop right here and just recap a little bit. The reason for this comment was uh, someone was saying, I don't know how to uh, reconcile or argue the fact that God has never changed if his if a commandment has changed. In other words, they were trying to say God's commandments never change. And so that was kind of the... the, um, the and, Ultimately, this is difficult for people who are in the uh, the Torah movement, however you want to say that, whether you're Hebrew roots, Messianic, Pronomian, whatever it may be. The um, the, the fact of the matter is, is people don't want uh, commandments to change, understandably, because if commandments can change, uh, then we have the ability for the Torah to change, right? And so this would play into the standard Christian view uh, that the Torah has been, that certain parts of the Torah has, have been done away with. Okay, and so... Um, I am never a fan of trying to manipulate something that isn't true or isn't there just to prove your point. And I think that most people would agree with that. Um, So, no, we do see commandments change. And I will give an example here. I give a different example than the one I gave last week. Uh, The Mishkan, the tent of meeting. Once Israel comes into the land, the Mishkan is set up in, uh, where was it set up? Help me out, Rob. Well, first it's set up in the north, right? In in Shiloh. Yeah. Okay. In Shiloh. Shiloh. In 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 Shiloh, there they are actually. That's what I was thinking about. They're actually excavating. This is really cool. We learned this at the uh, SBL. They've narrowed it down to two places. There's only two places that the Mishkan could actually fit. And so in Shiloh, they have started excavating one of those two places. So they've narrowed it down to two places where the Mishkan actually was, and that's really cool. Um, anyway, so after that, God promises that he's going to show them a place where he's going to put his eyes and his heart. And that is going to be the place from now on that you can sacrifice. You can only sacrifice. And when they're coming into the land in Deuteronomy, it says, I'm going to show you this place. And that's where you're going to do all the sacrifices. This is a change. This is a change. Another change that we see is that only priests are allowed to, to uh, offer these sacrifices. Before, basically, before uh, Moses given the Torah, we see pretty much anybody being able to give sacrifices, right? And now it, it kind of comes to the priest, and now they come into the land, and no longer is it in a tent. That now moves to the walls of the temple. And now that the temple's destroyed, we don't see Israel trying to re-erect the Mishkan because that law has... I mean, I hate to use like a Kaiser's um, Kaiser's term, but Walt, Dr. Walter Kaiser, brilliant scholar, uh, who I disagree with, we disagree with on certain things. He uses a term built-in obsolescence for the Torah. Now, I don't believe that, but I do believe that, that this might, if we're going to use that term, this might be a case where we'd use that. In other words, the Mishkan had built-in obsolescence in that they would come into the land and all of a sudden that those laws are no longer kept. In other words, the laws of you know this tribe picking up this part of the Mishkan, this tribe going and doing this to the Mishkan, those are no more. And why are they no more? Well, they're no more because now we have a temple. Actually, we don't have a temple, but God has revealed the place that the temple needs to be, and therefore that's what we have. Okay, 
So now that we've recapped that, I have, by the way, I haven't had the, uh, okay. Uh, I just wanted to check the chat room and see if uh, they were crying heresy yet. Okay. So um, that's where we were coming from. The Levites are only marry, uh, to marry fellow Jews. Now, uh, I am paraphrasing your, uh, your words. Yeah, and actually, Rob and I went in and looked at this. That's not actually the case, is it, Rob? Well, we can. It it depends. If I mean, we looked at uh, there's the passage from Leviticus, right, right. that we can look at, and there's uh, Ezekiel, right. Which one were you talking about? Well, the idea that a that a priest can't marry outside of the Levitical line that's not that's that's uh read into the Levitic, leviticus text correct talk about yeah, that Le- for me in leviticus it i don't have the verses in front of me but in leviticus it says that he can't marry a i, I should have had it up sorry that's okay um that he can't marry you know a, a harlot you know a woman who's uh been a harlot uh or a widow or, and that uh, his wife has to be a virgin. Leviticus 21.7, by the way, is what we're looking at. Is that at. what it is? Thank yeah, you. and Ezekiel four, uh, chapter 44. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and go to it. Leviticus 21.7. 21.7. And here's the passage. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Now, as everyone can hear, this doesn't say that she's that he is not allowed to marry someone outside of the tribe of the Levites, correct? Right, right. And it's the passage in Ezekiel 44 that says uh, that he could marry anyone who is of the house of Israel. Right. As long as she follows that. Uh, and this was, a, you know, I, I know I've read it, but I just had forgotten that a priest can marry a widow if she's the widow of a priest. Right. Yes, because that's in the Ezekiel passage. That's, yeah, Ezekiel 44, 22. It says, They shall not marry a widow or divorced woman, shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. Right. So. Okay. So, um, but, but, but. With all of that said, we can still take this same argument that uh, let's say that a, that a priest is not allowed to marry or marry a girl who has uh, had sexual relations previous previous sexual relations. Okay, um, so with that in mind, let's go back to the comment. Um, my question stems from the idea of application of the law. As I understand it, the Torah isn't just a rule book for individuals, but for a whole community. Therefore, in one sense, the rules apply to the whole community. Okay, I'm with you on this. To use your example, while only the Levite is prohibited from marrying a Gentile woman, the, the whole community needs to be guarding the command by teaching the Gentiles in their midst to guard against marrying a Levite. The Gentile father needs to be just as diligent in teaching his daughter not to entertain a relationship with a Levite as the Levite father needs to be diligent in uh, teaching his son not to entertain a relationship with a Gentile. And, and we can just change this to uh, you know, a, a woman who has had relations previously. I hear the idea of parts of Torah only apply to some people all the time, but it seems to me that state, that statement is ignoring the communal aspect of Torah. 
Am I wrong to view Torah as a community rule and the application of it in this way? Um, so I think that, yes, you're right. It is a community rule. However, once again, if we, and I think that the idea of the Mishkan is probably a much better example for all of this. There are certain tribes or certain, yeah, certain tribes within Israel that w- had specific jobs that others did not have. Now you could say, well, the community rule is you're not supposed to go pick up the, the, uh, you know, the curtains of the temple because that's for another tribe. And yeah, that's true. In that, in that sense, certainly, um, that, that is the case. And I mean, I, I suppose we could apply this to, to everything. So for instance, obviously a man is not going to be, um, is not going to need to worry about, uh, the laws of a mens- of a menstrual cycle since he doesn't have one. However, the idea is, is if he is married to a woman who has a menstrual cycle, then all of a sudden he does have to worry about them. So yes, I mean, this logic does kind of play into everything. We can say the same about a leper. A leper is not allowed to uh, live within the camp. Um, well, the, the community has to put the leper outside the camp, right? So yeah, I mean, in, in one sense, the Torah applies to everyone, no matter what the rule is. But I guess the point is, is that there are some laws that um, are not going to apply to me. In other words, you are to pick up and carry this part of the Mishkan. That is not going to apply to me. Now, we could turn that around and say, you are not to pick up this part of the Mishkan and carry. So in that respect, yes, I understand what you're saying. Anything else on that, Rob? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I was thinking of the Torah specifically back to the marriage idea of the priest. Right. We know that, um, oh boy, I'll have to, I have to remember this. I think it's in, is it, we learn it in Exodus six where, where there's a review. Sorry. Let me just pull it up here real quick. So it just occurred to me. <clears throat> so in Exodus six, it's the, there's a, a short, uh, genealogy of the sons of Levi, because you're dealing with Aaron and Moses are being introduced into the Torah story. And um, it's, it says, okay, so I'm at uh, 622. Okay, sons of Uziel, Mishael, Etzafahan, say three. Aaron, so Aharon married Elisheva, daughter of Aminadav, sister of Nachshon. And she bore him Nadav, Avihu, Eleazar, and Itamar. So this is um, this is Shemot or Exodus 6, 20, 23 and 24. So why is this important? Well, Elisheva, Aaron's wife, so the, remember Aaron had four sons, the two first native and Avihu die when they offer strange fire. Okay, she's of the tribe of Judah. So Aaron, the first high priest, marries Elisheva, who's the daughter of Aminadav, sister of Nachshon. Nachshon is the, the main prince of the tribe of Judah, who is the first in, in numbers when each of the tribes comes and offers uh, this huge, you know, majestic offering with the setting up of the Mishkan. The tribe of Judah goes first, and it's Nachshon who's the one who offers that. Nachshon is in the genealogy of Messiah, of course. And Nachshon's son, Solomon, marries Rahab. Right? And they have a son named Boaz, and Boaz marries Ruth. And we learn this from Matthew 1. So 
the question is, well, what, what the rabbis want to say is that, well, the rabbis don't agree with Matthew 1, where Matthew 1 says that Rahab married Solomon. They don't agree that. They teach that, Rab- that uh, Rahab married Joshua. So you have a core tradition difference between uh, Rahab. How does Rahab fit in with the genealogy? We're going to stick with Matthew on this. And Matthew says that Rahab married uh, Salmon, son of Nachshon. So, and with Ruth, both, they're going to say they converted to Judaism. They became Jews. Right. And so then the question is, would the offspring, if, if, if they had daughters, would those daughters be eligible to marry a priest? Well, the rabbis would say, yeah, because now they are, they converted, yeah, so Jewish. now they're Jewish. Right. But so, so it's just the kind of question we would, we would ask. We'd say, so if, if Rahab and uh, Salmon had a daughter, would they be off, would they have to teach that daughter? Now we know that you have an uncle, your great uncle is Aaron, the high priest. Um, and so you have these cousins who are, you know, the priests but you can't marry them, right? Don't ever, don't even think about it. Or would they say, well, but now you're kind of grafted in and you're part of Israel. So if you do have a daughter or if Ruth had a daughter, would that daughter be eligible or not to marry a priest? These are, these are, these are hypothetical halakhic type of questions that we really, we don't have enough information to answer. Okay, but hang on. Let now, Michael uh, brought up a, another passage, which kind of just throws a wrench into everything as well, which is Ezra 10, uh, 10 through 44. I'll read just, I think there's more going on in this passage, but I'll read just uh, verses 18 and 19. Now there was found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Maze, Eliezer, Jerob and Gedaliah, son of the sons of Yeshua, the son of uh, Yozadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock of their guilt. So in other words, uh, you know, the, in this passage, the prophet comes up and says, whoa, whoa, whoa what are you doing? You've been, you, you married foreign wives. I think that there's something else going on in this passage. And we've talked about this before, and I can't remember exactly what it was that... Uh, that I, I looked at, but there's something going on here because we see people as Ruth is obviously one of the uh, one that's already been brought up. Um, and Moses, right? Joseph and Moses. Right. right. It, to me, it, it, they translate it married, but it's, it's, you are living with foreign women. It's strange. It, it's the as admittedly the Ezra passage is strange. Um, and it's not clear to me that the Lord is behind this. Right. I mean, Ezra, Ezra ends, Nehemiah ends and there's just, the, the problems aren't resolved. Right. Um, so that's, I, I'm glad that got brought up, but, so, uh, yeah, um, well, we can shift gears a little bit here. I think it's a good conversation. I do think it's a good conversation, but we can shift gears a little bit here. Uh, Scott Major in the uh, chat room says, what do you think about Messianic rabbi? I'm going to put quotes around rabbi. Greg Hirschberg saying there are only around 300 commands left in the Torah out of the 613 original commands. Hirschberg is not the one who came up with this, by the way. Um, there's an entire rabbinical book 
uh, that lays out the uh, commands that are still to be kept after the, t- the temple fell. So Hirschberg is just piggybacking on uh, work that's already been done. Not that that's a bad thing. We all do that. I'm just saying that this is an original to uh, Hirschberg. Um, and and uh, I would say that, yeah, certainly by the time you start to uh, pull uh, the, the commands from the temple out, because there is no temple, commands for being a priest, all these kind of things, then it gets down to a much, much lower number. 613, the the uh, command, uh, the uh, comment is made by love is bigger. The 613 is, is uh, Talm- Talmudic. And that's true. In other words, uh, actually, this is so this is a little fun thing to do. I, I decided, okay, is there really 613 commands? No, I don't think so. In fact, if you look at the 613 commands, if you start to do a study on that, then uh, the rabbis are kind of all over the place on that. They have, you know, different numbers, and, and finally they kind of rest on 613. Well, they don't do that because there's actually 613 commands in the Torah. They actually try to come up with 613s for, for different reasons. The point of this is, is that one of the things I decided to start doing with my son, who's eight years old, was to, I have the I have uh, Rambam's work on the 613 commands. And what he does is he takes all 613 commands as are laid out in the Talmud, and he, uh, and he gives scriptural reference on why they believe that these are commands. And some of them are, are spot on, and some of them are actually really funny. Um, and so I decided, well, I want my son to be able to, to uh, think critically. In other words, I want him to ask questions. I don't want him to just accept things. So what my son and I have been doing for the past, I don't know, a couple months, has been going through Rambam's 613 commands. And what I'll do is I'll read him the command that is put forward by the Talmud. And then I'll say, and this is the scripture that they get it from. And then I'll read the scripture to him and I'll say, what do you think? Does the Bible actually command this or not? And this has actually brought up some really great conversation between me and my eight-year-old son. I will admit my son... Ten, really enjoys the uh, ability to reason. So it's made it even more fun. Um, but the point is, is that, yeah, the idea of 613 commands, uh, this, uh, this I think is a rabbinic invention. But, yes. Well, and they dispute uh, between like uh, Ramban and Ramban. Uh, Ramban <clears throat> comes later and says, oh, no, Rambam got it wrong on this, this, this. And, right. and he comes up with other commandments that this other guy left. But the point is, because they both are committed to the Talmudic tradition, they, they both have to affirm 613. So, so if Rambam finds a commandment that he thinks Rambam missed, he has to subtract. Right. He's got he's to find one right. from Rambam to take away so that he can retain the 613. So 613 Wait. is an ideological number. It's not a factual it's it's not actually right. a counted number it's it's ideological but that's not the point of scott's uh comment and and scott i understand exactly what you're saying and and i'm we're we're kind of on a rabbit trail of the 613 because we don't have to talk about the 613 it's yeah. like what, what what is applicable yeah and and the, and the point the point that scott is making and it, and it is a true point is that uh you, you know whatever the number is and we'll, we'll use 613 as just a benchmark just to because it's easy so, okay, so let's, let's pretend that there's 613 commands in the Torah. These obviously don't all apply today because we're, we don't live in the land. So a ton of the commands are if we live in the land. Now, this could get into, uh, this could get into entire conversations and debates over theonomy, whether or not we should be practicing those kind of commands here in our land, even though it's not the land of Israel, since we are believers. So this, this, bring, this is a whole different avenue of theology. Um, and then... Um, we can also talk about, well, we're not priests, we can't go to the temple. And so if you start to subtract things that we're actually able to keep, and when we say actually able to keep, once again, are we able to keep the uh, 
you know, the Passover? The answer is no, because to celebrate the Passover, you have to go up to the temple. I just wrote an article on this for uh, Nehemiah Restoration Ministries, uh, which you can find on their uh, on their website and on their Facebook page. Um, so the the point is is that um, you have to go up to the temple and you have to sacrifice a lamb, and you have to give that you have to give the live lamb to a priest. The priest has to sacrifice the lamb. You can't do any of these things. So then the question is, is and I don't address this in the article, but. The question is then, well, can we actually celebrate the Passover? And the answer is no, not the way that the Torah says. It says you shall keep it, and then it gives these the, these things. And so the, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice what we are able to keep. And that's essentially what we're doing. And we see this in in First Corinthians, right? Paul talks about the Corinthian community celebrating the Passover. And so uh, we should keep as much as we possibly can. But if we take away all the things that that uh, have to do with the priesthood, the temple, um, these kind of things, then all of a sudden the commands from a arbitrary number of 613 all of a sudden get reduced down. And this is exactly what Scott is saying. And yes, the answer is yes. Uh, actually, I think it's even less than 300. And a lot of them are, you know, uh, have to do with if you're a woman or if you're a judge or if you're a leper or, you know. So if you start taking those things away and just look at, okay, the commands that are given and back to our conversation, conversation. Suzanne would, Susanna would, uh, would say, yes, the Torah, you know, these are all laws that we have to observe or tell our children not to observe or whatever. So yes, that's true. But if we look at the things that I personally have to do, then those laws get reduced way down. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I have said that uh, the difference between mainstream Christianity in terms of law keeping and their belief on the law compared to those in the Torah movement, whether it's Hebrew roots, Messianic, the, uh, pronomian, whatever it may, may be. Uh, all, uh, you sneak that in there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no matter what it may be, the difference really comes down to four major commands, right? That is the Sabbath, festival keeping, uh, the kosher laws, and then maybe some might throw in tzitzit or not. And actually, we're going to talk about that here in just a second. Okay. Anything on that before we move on? Okay. Thank you, by the way, uh, Scott and Love is Bigger in the chat room. Uh, that, was a, that was a worthy conversation to, uh, to, to move to. Okay. Um, so we're going to move now to Stephen. Stephen uh, wrote in, and we met Steve in, uh, in uh, where were we, New Jersey, face-to-face. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful believer. And I, I don't know why. So Stephen calls into the office often. We have some of the greatest conversations that, uh, that I am privileged to have. I don't know why, but he had the greatest red pants. That's what I remember in New Jersey. Is he had, he okay, had great, cool. <laughs> great red pants. Anyway. Okay. So Stephen writes and he says, I'm currently working through Leviticus. <clears throat> it's a tough book. And I'm really struggling with, hang on just a sec. Okay, maybe that'll be better. I am really struggling with using a consistent hermeneutic to apply to Leviticus 19 and becoming Torah obedient, specifically as it applies to improper mixing. Have you ever addressed this in any Messiah Matters episodes? Now, he's going to give two different things. We have addressed several times the um, the idea of not mixing of certain fabrics. Um, and ultimately, if you let ter- uh, Scripture interpret Scripture then uh, really what you're not allowed to mix is uh, linen and wool 
and linen and wool. If you find if you find garments that uh, mix linen and wool, which is very difficult to find. Uh, in fact, I think you actually have to pretty much go searching for it. But I would say this: I personally do not have any uh, clothes in my wardrobe that has linen and wool mixed. Not one garment that has linen and wool mixed. And I will also tell you this: if I pick up a uh, a piece of clothing and it doesn't feel like a normal cotton garment, I always look to see what's in it. I I genuinely look to see if linen and wool is in it, even though I know that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, that's not even an option. It won't be, yeah. So, um, with that said, we're going to leave that off to the side. So he says, "Have you ever addressed not shaving the sideburns?" And we'll we'll get to the specific uh, the specific verse that he's talking about here in a few seconds. But let's let's read the rest of his. Um, whatever uh, his his email. Okay, I have heard so many contrary opinions coming from leaders within the Messianic community. Um, actually, Caleb in the chat room, it's not whatever pronoun it may be. I said, uh, or pronomian. Pronomian. This goes back to a different conversation that we had last week and, some, and a video that I made for uh, Growing a Messiah. Anyway, go to Growing a Messiah. You can watch my video on uh, pronomian. Christianity. Okay. So back to Stephen's email. I have heard so many contrary opinions from uh, leaders within the Messianic community. How do we consistently submit to the Torah's commands to observe the feast days, the seventh day Sabbath, the kosher laws, which I wholeheartedly agree with, and then turn around and say, zit zit doesn't have to be worn today or a kippah. Okay. Hold on right there. Now you're mixing two things. You're mixing, but no, <laughs> get it? Mixing. Yeah, uh, zitzit is a Torah command. Akipa is not. There's nowhere in the uh, Akipa is a later rabbinical invention, <clears throat> and uh, so the idea that uh, that people would say you don't have to wear Akipa, well, that's because it's not in Torah. Zitzit, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there are leaders out there who say you don't have to wear zitzit today, but I am not one of them. I think that um, the zitzit are a command. I think that they are a good command. I think that they are, I mean, I the idea of a what would Jesus do bracelet uh, was kind of like, God already made that. It's called tzitzit. Well, what would Jesus do? It's already called the Torah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, I wear tzitzit every single day, and I'm not sure. That's what... an interesting thought. I never thought about that. Sorry. What? The what would you, that was a big, crazy thing. What would Jesus do, right? Right. But why why do you have young Christians asking that question? It's because they don't that what they think what I what I think they mean why is like oh I'm going to live my life and then when I get to a situation that I'm not sure what to do I'm just going to like imagine my yeah. Sunday school Jesus I'm going to look at my bracelet and remember oh yeah what would Jesus do in this situation Jesus and then I imagine like my Sunday school Jesus yeah and and then I on think, the felt oh, I board wait on, yeah, the felt, on the felt board. on the felt board right. <laughs> right. But when in fact, which is, I never thought of it that way, that when in fact the question means they probably aren't studying the Torah. I don't know. I thought, I just had that. Uh... Yeah. Well, but the, oh, so uh, the church that I co-pastor, we're trying to get into a new b- building and uh, the pastor of the church that, it, that we're trying to uh, rent from, uh, we were walking to, uh, we were walking into the building so he could give us a tour and we were opening the door. I was opening the door and he pulled my 
my uh, my jacket aside because he thought I had something on me, but it was my tzitzit. And he was, and he start like looked at my tzitzit. Like, yeah, you've got some threads hanging yeah, exactly, out from your shirt. Exactly. And I and and he just kind of looked at me real puzzled like, and I said, "Do you know what that is?" And he said, "No, what is that?" I said, "Well, it's you know, it's uh, our, our command numbers fifteen thirty seven. And he said, "Oh." I said, I actually think that this is a, uh, I think that this is a great way to witness to people as well. Not only does it remind us of the commandments, but it's a great way to uh, witness to people. He said, oh, why is that? I said, well, because the commandments, are, you know, th- we're commanded to put a thread of blue into the tzitzit. And blue is, is the color of royalty. It represents Yeshua. And Yeshua is, you know, you can't keep the commandments without Yeshua. And so this is a great, you know, Paul tells us about trying to keep the commandments without, uh, without Christ. And so this is a great way to tell people about, about your faith. And so I, I'm not sure why people have said that you shouldn't wear a tzitzit or that, that that's gone away, but I don't agree with that. The kippah, yes, I don't think that uh, the kippah is a rabbinic invention. Therefore, I don't think that it needs to be kept. Okay, let's keep going with Stephen's comment. He says, these are only ancient Jewish cultural practices, or furthermore, we can shave our sideburns now because that was only a directive for ancient Israel to not look like the Gentile nations around them. I disagree with that. We'll talk about that in a second. That's a really good point. If I may just put a word, there's two different registers of this. One is what is actually commanded and what is traditions of men. So there's that. And then there's the rabbinic what what the rabbis present as what God commanded. Exactly. And sometimes, and and so when we're putting on our little camera lenses, or we have to put in the right right kind of lens, we got to focus just right to make sure that we're asking, you know, as accurately as possible, right, as precisely as possible. Um, and just now, you've pointed out just the, the two different times where popular idea of what is commanded might really be heavily rabbinically influenced rather than what is actually the scripture. And I think this was a problem in the first century. This is why Yeshua said you've, you've let your traditions take over and you're not, and you're putting aside the actual commandments. And so Yeshua, even in, in, we read it in, you know, Matthew 15, Mark seven, challenging Jews to rethink Wow, what do I think actually is commanded versus what is actually written? Anyway, end of footnote. Go ahead. So Stephen, I'm looking Steve, for it here. seems like Stephen is is coming uh, is listen is hearing teachers who are saying that uh, certain parts of the Torah are old cultural Jewish practices. That's what I'm getting from his comment, and I think you would have to take each individual command specifically and look at it, which we're going to do with this one on on uh, shaving the the sideburns and the beard in just a second. But he goes on, the entire Mosaic law is ancient if you want to use that line of reasoning. It also doesn't help or make sense to me to break the law into three main categories, ceremonial, moral, and civil. Agreed. These are commands within the Torah, correct? What hermeneutic principle is being invoked to declare that these commands are now uh, rescinded or only optional? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, Stephen. I don't think that that that, uh, works. Um, But let's look at now, let's take the hermeneutical principle that we use and look at uh, this Leviticus passage. We're looking at Leviticus 19, 26 through 28. And the reason I pulled all three verses instead of just 27 is because I think that the context is actually important here. This is what it says from the ESV. You shall not eat any flesh with the, with the blood in it. 
You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourself. I am the Lord. The context of this passage specifically is idol worship. Now, if you look at the um, the um, words within the Hebrew that, that say to round off the hair on your temples or to mar the edge of your beard. These are two different words, but they one of them means the round off one mean can mean to destroy. The mar can mean multiple different things, but can also mean to annihilate or destroy. This is going within the idea of pagan worship. Everything that's listed is pagan worship in the surrounding context. And what the uh, what the pagans used to do is, and I think sometimes they still do this uh, in certain cultures, they use scarification on their heads to make it so that hair won't grow anymore. And I think that this is actually specifically what it's talking about. In fact, Judaism today, and I'm not saying that they need to be the benchmark by what we would look at, but uh, just in terms of an interpretation model, even Judaism today does not say that you're not allowed to cut your sideburns. In fact, you are allowed to cut your sideburns and you're allowed to cut your, your beard. This is why you'll see people like Ben Shapiro who are Orthodox Jews but have no beard and have nice haircuts. What they say is you're not allowed to use a razor on them. Well, why is that? Because you might accidentally cut yourself. So the, the point is, is that what the pagans did was that they would cut themselves in certain areas to make it so that hair would not grow. They would destroy the hair. They would destroy the flesh so that the hair wouldn't grow. And this is exactly what we're not to do. So if we ta- when we look at the, t- the Torah commands, we need to take each individual one within its context and say, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that just because it's a- ancient and cultural, we shouldn't do it. If somebody says to me, I'm going to, scarif- I'm going to use scarification to make it so that my, my hair doesn't grow right here, I'm going to say, no, that's against Torah, <laughs> right? That's still against Torah. Even though it was a cultural thing back then, it still applies today. You're not allowed to do that. Scarification is against Torah. And, and so I would say that anyone who wants to uh, partake in scarification anywhere on their body, I would direct, and they want to keep Torah, I would direct them to this, this passage. Rob? Yeah, there's. you can see I've been occupied here, but I don't have my readers, so I'm struggling. Well, I was re- reading the book on the, the legend of Safed this last year. I haven't looked at it for a couple months, uh, but it gets into the development of from the medieval times to today and traces all the rabbinic discussion about this passage of what does it mean if you, if you round off what we're looking at, at least the uh, Leviticus 19.27. And the the whole tradition that comes out of the Lurianic Kabbalah is that if you, if you don't keep this commandment, the way the rabbis say, that you, you are reincarnated as a cow. Right. And I, <laughs> I'm not joking. Okay. That's what they teach. And the reason why is because in Leviticus 19.27, 27, it begins, Lo takifu pe'at roshechem. You shall not, what it says, round off the uh, the peas, the peya of your head. Well, the, the, the what they call the rashe tevot, the first letter of uh, pe'at is a pe. The first letter of uh, roshechem, your head, is, is re- resh. So pe resh spells par, which is the word 
for, well, para is a cow or par is an ox. So that is what they teach. That's the Lurianic thing. And there's all these stories of, of a rabbi having a dream about uh, someone who is a cow and it's a person who, it's a Jew who in a former life, I, it's almost hard to say this without laughing, didn't obey this commandment. And now they need a Jew who's alive, a human Jew, to do some sort of special prayer and what they call tikkun, right? tikkun olam, to restore their soul because they're trapped in, in, in this body of a cow, whether it's in the other world or in this world, they're actually a cow and their, their soul is trapped because they didn't keep this commandment. And, and so this particular author who looks at the, this Kabbalistic folklore shows how in all these sources, the, it was never about what the actual Torah commanded. It was taken to mean you can't look like a Gentile. And, right. and one of the reasons was, and specifically in the, in the Jewish communities that were in Egypt, in North Africa, at this time, so this is in the Middle Ages into up to leading to the time of Safed, which was in the you know 1500s, is they were a bits people that were also being circumcised. So the so Jews were not physically, a Jewish body was not, male body was not physically differentiated from non-Jews just by looking at the, the sign of the covenant. And the fear was if if there was a Jew who was on a journey and died, and someone found the body and they saw that this, this man had been circumcised, they would not know that this was a Jewish person and therefore needed to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And so there was a fear that was pro, uh, promoted among these super stringent rabbis that you have to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. You And so you can't, you can't rely on the fact that you're circumcised to be a differentiator anymore. Therefore we need other ways. And it had to do with how the beard was kept. Well, this folklorist does a really good job. He shows in Europe, this was different because people had a tradition of shaving. And so it was, so there was certain response that was okay. But then you go to Middle Eastern countries where you had Muslims that had different sizes of beards and things, they had to really grow the payas out really long to say, just to tell the world. I'm we're Jewish. Not, yeah. yeah. And it was because, and one of the, one of the uh, prods, one of the incentives was that, look, if you die by yourself somewhere and someone finds you, they need to know you're Jewish and they're going to, it has to be a visual mark and it's going to be the payas. And if you don't do it, you're going to be reincarnated as an animal. Right. And you don't, and that's not good. And so all this, all this superstition built up over the last several hundred years concerning this. Now I've seen pictures like they have back to the cartoon Jesus. I think it's the, the James Trim guy, the Nazarene guy. He, he's got pictures of <laughs> like cartoon pictures of Jesus with like a keypot and then like really long payas. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it's what it is. It just shows it's like people taking, you know, it's like the Renaissance paintings of Moses and the children of Israel, right? I right. mean, it's all like Renaissance clothing. And that's like what, 
what they imagined, like the best clothing of their day, but then they like projected it back thousands of years prior. Right. And this is just, this is the problem is like, we, we are so bound. There are so many thoughts that have taken root that are wrong. And they're so easy to think with that we just take them for granted. And I think that when we, when it says take every thought captive, I think in a super hyper literal way, I take that is like, we, we have to be super, super careful of what we think and what we take as truth, because we're supposed to build on rock. And that's what we're ultimately what we're talking about. When we're talking about what did God command versus what did man command? Setting aside for a minute, the things that God commanded that are outside of our actual reach like now. I mean, we talked about this the other week. We talked about the death penalty, for example. So there are things that God commanded, things that man has built and made traditions of. That's It's rock versus sand, really, right? It's rock versus sand. I want to build on the rock. And even if there's something like death penalty, that's a, a big issue, I can still understand the gravity of God's judgment about a crime, even if my society won't do anything about it in the, in a, in the way that the biblical uh, communication to us ha- uh, describes the gravity of that crime. So if there's, a, in other words, if there's a discrepancy between how the society I live in treats a crime uh, and there's this gap between how it is in my society versus what's in the Bible. It doesn't mean God has changed his standards. I, I still can hold to the standard of the Bible and insist that that, that what God is, says is true and that everyone else is a liar. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean I have to now go out and, you know, become the judge right. and, you know, put someone to death. Um Okay, we got a lot anyway. going on in the chat room here. So Sean uh, writes, uh, there's no biblical indication that seed is for men only, correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. In fact, uh, I think it was um, Rabbi Akiva had his uh, the women of his house wear tzitzit. Um, the people will say it's a men's garment. I disagree with that. Um, other people will say that B'nai Israel can mean specifically sons of Israel and not all Israel. That is true in certain times. However, I would uh, basically say it's up to you and or, uh, yeah, it's pretty much up to a household rule at that point. Okay. And then uh, Scott Major again says, uh, let's see here. Oh, no, Paul Archer. I'm sorry. Paul says, Caleb, what are your thoughts on those who go through tattoo removal? Would that be scarring of the body? No, that's not scarring of the body. In fact, the uh, tattoo tattoos can scar the body, especially if the person is not good at what they're doing. Removing the tattoo does not scar the body; it breaks up the ink within the skin. In if this the if the tattoo had the person who tattooed uh, you is, ha, has scarred you, then they won't actually be able to do that because the scarring if it scars you too much, it actually won't break up. It still won't break up the uh, the ink. So my answer on that would be no. Uh, tattoo removal does not scar the body. It does burn I, the I skin. Think, I think what they mean is when like. Cutting, like, um, I don't know, you know, when they deliberately cut and and try to create patterns and things like that, isn't that's that scar- what that is? That's scarification. Scar- yeah, yeah. It's like deliber- trying to create signs <laughs> and patterns and symbols on the body using cutting 
Yeah, I think that's different. And then Art says, what if I have tattoos from my past? Um, and yeah, there's a whole conversation that went on about this. Removing tattoos is extremely pricey. Um, and uh, as is said in the chat room. Um, and then Jose says, I don't know, are hearts intent tattoos and scarring are frowned upon in the Torah, though? Yeah, I think that uh, uh, here's the reality of sin, whether it's on your body and visible to other people or it's internal, sin will scar you. That's all there is to it. And you're going to be left with those scars um, no matter what. It's just the way it is, whether or not people can see them or not. I'm not saying that if, if the Lord is, is leading you to get your tattoos removed, then by all means, go for it. Um, it but if for some reason you're not able to do that. Don't, don't break the bank. I mean, I, yeah. I don't, it, it, you have, make sure you have your priorities in terms of your, you know, your financial limitations, uh, you know, if you got family to take care of and. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't have a tattoo, so I don't. I don't know that culture or what kind of expense we're talking about. Um, I just don't have any knowledge about that. I think that um, obviously, if you have tattoos that are, uh, if you've come to the Lord after being in a life of things like, you know, I've seen documentaries on people who were in uh, into white supremacy. They have uh, swastikas and or SS tattooed on them. People who were maybe in the occult and have, uh, you know. Uh, satanic symbols on them or something like that. If that's the case, I would, yes, get your tattoo. Oh, yeah, I agree. Get that would be more of removed. a priority. But if it's like a heart with his mother, you know, you got it in the military <laughs> or something, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think, yeah. And and then, you know, I'm, I've known people who've had that in, in different Torah communities and they like, they might wear long sleeve shirts all the time because they're just, you know, they're not interested in, in, displaying it they, they obviously made a choice or younger at a younger age and right. um and so you know that's you know and, and it can be part of your story too you can share you know I, I did this and i you know now i look back and i i'm stuck with it you know and and so i don't know i think uh but i think that it, like you said caleb um just because someone you know, like myself, doesn't have outward tattoos. It doesn't mean I don't have a sin problem in my past that, I've, that, you know, we all come to the Lord and we recognize that by his grace, like Yeshua did something awesome for us, something absolutely amazing and unbelievably awesome. And and that's that's what this is about. All right. Uh, it's been fun. It's been real. Thanks again to uh, Sean for the wonderful One more time. One more time. You want to hear one more time? All right. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. Okay. There's a little, right? There's like this cool little sound in there. I like it. All right. Uh, So, yeah, you can also send us emails, chegatorresource.com. And we will be back, I believe, next week to talk about something, something else that's, uh, you know, awesome and and great, something about the Bible. That's going to be it. Uh, We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Yes, he does. 